So I, I'm no exaggeration, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to see family and friends here, and this is, um, this is a real honor. And I am a little bit surprised that so many of you came out. All I can say is some like it hot. Um, as Wayne said, well, I don't know whether Wayne said this or not, but I retired from the University of Houston last summer while still in full administrative harness, and as we say, and there's much that I would still like to share. So this morning is an opportunity like that. When Wayne and Callista approached me at a retirement soiree thrown by two other former students, Eris Akonaman and Hanukkah Faber, we didn't know what the talk would be on, but I was thrilled at the prospect. Suffice it to say then, I am happy to be here. Um, so, you probably want to know who I am. And um, let's see if this works. So if Wiesel is right, that we are the stories that we tell in here, let me tell a couple of short ones by way of introduction. I'm a native Houstonian and child of native Houstonians, fairly rare. Uh, alas, I hardly knew my fraternal grandparents, but there's a good chance that William Oliver Monroe, family members, including my father, were active members of the congregation here at St. Paul's. My maternal grandparents, originally from Opelousas, Louisiana, lived not far from here in a house on Caroline Street. Um, my grandfather, Benjamin Franklin St. Cyr. There's a story embedded in that combination of hyper-American given names and a French surname uh, from Opelousas. Um, he went by Frank and walked to work each day to his little furniture storefront on Eagle Street next to the old Art Deco Sears on South Main, now the Ion. Well, my mother and father lived in Bel Air when I was born, and when I was seven, we moved to a subdivision in Memorial, about a half mile south of an abandoned World War I gunnery range. Now, the site of an enormous business retail and restaurant complex on Gessner, formerly known as the Memorial City Mall. Our house on Cobblestone was also just a half block west of a north-south drainage waterway. No cement, a wild natural place, a place below sight lines and separate from the safe and orderly lanes and lawns and houses, a place that everyone called the ditch. <laughs> a few years later, I wrote and presented a story about that lost and wonderful source of boyhood adventure. Eventually, I was graduated from Memorial High School, and much of the rest you can get from the professional bio so generously published in Bill Curley's Ordinary Life Preview. A story not included there is my marriage to my bride of 46 years, Helen Marie, who came to support me today, and can I? And <laughs> bake the sacred cookies that we have been enjoying. <laughs> Thank you, honey. And my appreciate, appreciation goes out to the friends, family, and former students who are here in the house this morning and to many others who are zooming in. Wonderful to see and be seen. So why this topic today? I've been following Dr. Curley's talks and those of his guests with great interest by Zoom or in person for several months, and I hope that you will agree that a talk about stories is a good fit for the Ordinary Life series, generally and specifically, especially now since the current theme calls our attention to the interior journey, the one we make within and through a lifetime. Now, while I've been relating facts about myself, I've also been telling stories. In fact, that's how I've related the facts about myself. So, how do incidents, events, that occur and places we visit and inhabit become meaningful and significant. Just how important are stories? Norman McLean says life takes on designs that aren't visible until they're pointed out by a storyteller. The designs are part of something bigger, although I'd hesitate to say what. 
And then he says, a lot of people find my writing quite religious. Other people don't. It's very Norman. Um, so while we've been, uh, sorry. Um, so the importance of stories. Um, a couple of months ago, um, let's see, I think I'm caught up here. Yeah. We had Coach Michael Taylor on April 23rd in Ordinary Life. Uh, most of you will remember his um, stimulating visit. He said, one of his slides, I, I, I cut this out of one of his slides, our belief system doesn't just shape our perception of reality, it becomes our reality. And then further, where do thoughts, feelings, actions come from? Well, he said beliefs lead to thoughts, thoughts lead to feelings, feelings lead to actions, and actions lead to outcomes. But beliefs do not descend from the sky, like Athena coming out of the head of Zeus, right, fully formed. That's not how beliefs come to us. How do they come to us? This is my thesis for the day. Where do beliefs come from? Stories, stories, stories. So my friend, uh, friend Ted Estes, the founding dean of the Honors College, introduced me to Ellie Wiesel's work on stories. And um, you may know him as a Holocaust survivor who did uh, a memoir called Night, uh, which is read throughout the world. Uh, but he also has a lot of ideas about stories. Um, and in a 1964 novel, he prefaced, um, the novel is the, Ga the Gates of the Forest. He pre prefaced it with a Hasidic tale, which I'll read to you. And apologize, I apologize for the name pronunciations. I'm just going to bull through these. Um, when the great rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov saw misfortune threatening the Jews, it was his custom to go into a certain part of the forest to meditate. There he would light a fire, say a special prayer, and the miracle would be accomplished and the misfortune averted. Later when his disciple, the celebrated Magid of Mezrich, has occasion for the same reason, to intercede with heaven, he would go to the same place in the forest and say, Master of the universe, listen, I do not know how to light the fire, but I am able to say the prayer, and again, the miracle would be accomplished. Still later, Rabbi Moshe Lieb of Zazoff, in order to save his people once more, would go into the forest and say, I do not know how to light the fire. I did not know the prayer but I know the place, and this must be sufficient. It was sufficient, and the miracle was accomplished. Then it fell to Rabbi Israel of Rezim to overcome misfortune. Sitting in his armchair, his head in his hands, he spoke to God. I am unable to light the fire, and I do not know the prayer. I cannot even find the place in the forest. All I can do is tell the story. And this must be sufficient. And it was sufficient. So <clears throat> Wiesel boldly adds this coda. God made man because he loves stories. Okay then. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on to something here. And uh, so this was some, th these were ideas that were circulating uh, around largely as a result of my um, friendship with Ted. And I went to a conference out in Salt Lake City. I went to the public library for some reason, maybe to study or, you know, have some downtime from the conference. And I saw a poster there. And this was not the exact poster that I saw, 
but you all may have seen these posters in libraries. They're Reed posters. And this is Bette Midler. Uh, she apparently did the very first one. And I don't know that little book. Um, what is it called? Something... Baby Divine, do you all know that? Anyway, that was a book that, that was important to her. And so there are were, there were pictures of celebrities with, the, with their books. And you can go online and see, see some of them, as I did. Um, so I said, you know, I'm gonna, I want to I collect some stories from people and find out what's been important to them and why. And uh, so I went to the university, and, of course, they said, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't just ask people stuff. Uh, you have to get permission. <laughs> you have to go to the, the Committee on the Protection of Human Subjects. I said, well, I thought that was for like, you know, I don't know, you know, the Stanford experiments or something where you get to shock people. Uh, I just want to talk to them. Well, so anyway, what are you going to say? You know, how are you going to approach them? So anyway, I went through all that. That was an experience. It made me glad I was an English teacher instead of a scientist. Um, and one of the first people that I went to was Barbara Jordan. And um, I had actually had the pleasure of meeting, meeting her and doing a little interview back in the day um, for a place called St. Elizabeth Hospital foundation, a little newsletter. She was very kind, and she wrote a very kind letter. Um, Dear Bill, thank you for your kind letter and request that I contribute a story to the book you are currently writing. After serious consideration of your request, I regret that I must decline. Since assuming my responsibilities as a professor here at the LBJ School, it has been my desire to become a private citizen to stay out of the public eye. One way to do that is to stay out of the press, and by contributing to your book, I would be violating a policy that has served me well. I am sorry, but I trust you will understand. Please know that I appreciate your thinking of me and send best wishes for a thought-provoking and successful publication. Sincerely, Barbara Jordan. Well, you know, that's enough right there, the whole project, to get that from Barbara Jordan. Um, it's like, wow, I'm ready. I can retire now. It was a while back. So um, there, were other, there were other nice notes. I don't know how many of you all know uh, this author of I don't know how many books. Um, he's famous originally for a book called Children of Crisis. Actually, it was a series of books, A Study of Courage and Fear, about young children who were part of the de desegregation effort. Specifically in New Orleans was the first one, but then it, on from there, Arkansas. And he, he interviewed them. He was a child psychiatrist, so he kind of knew what he was doing. I don't know whether he had you know, permission from the Protection of Human Subjects Committee or not. He's just trying to do good stuff out there. And um, uh, he also, and this was published after I talked to him, um, did this book called The Call of Stories, Teaching in the Moral Imagination. So this was, I mean, part of the reason I reached out to him was that he was, I could see that he was working in this same area. It turns out that he just has this terrific book, which I, um, I hardly endorse. Also a nice note, Dear Bill Monroe, from that subject of inquiry, I'd be delighted to talk to you on the phone. This is hard to read, by the way. I just, that's the reason it's like scribble scrabble. Please call, um, call me when you get a chance. Um, uh, also read the essay on the O'Connor story, the Flannery O'Connor story with great interest. I use that story in my teaching. My best to you, Bob Coles. So again, I'm feeling pretty good about, about this project. And, um, you know, I, I, these are people, <clears throat> Pittman McGeehee, many of you know Pittman. Um, Pittman just, like, he sent me a packet of stories, <laughs> as you can imagine, if you know him. He sent me a packet of stories that he had written. 
and um, uh, I have those. I have those. I have those with me now. Uh, it's like, sure, um, here's some stories for you. And we got to be good friends as a result of that. Lady Bird Johnson, um, on the response slip, there were several choices. Please call me at this number. I would like to hear more about your project. Or I plan to contribute a story to your book, but I would prefer that you not call me at this time. Um, and then, unfortunately, I cannot communicate with you at this time. Uh, and Lady Bird checked that one, but that's fair. That is absolutely fair. Um, I don't think, I mean, this one, um, I'm not sure. You know, I got, I got basically notes or either from directly. George Rupp, who was president of Rice University, sent me a very nice note, but um, declined. T. Boone Pickens said, well, you know, I'm writing my own book, so uh, I can't really help you. Um, but, you know, basically it was positive. Then I got this one. Kind of took the winds out of my sails a little bit, but uh, this is from the name withheld down there at the bottom. William Monroe, colon. Every other month I'm approached by a would-be author who has decided to make his fortune collecting tidbits from persons who are well known. One wanted to know what one wanted to know what my and God alone knows how many others first sexual experience was. Another desired a favorite a favorite recipe. <laughs> Another wanted an analysis of a book desired um, uh, wanted an analysis of a book which had influenced the course of my human history. There was one out-and-out -out nut from UCLA who thought she knew what an atheist was from a fundamentalist standpoint and desired what, that I furnish her with the names and addresses of a representative sample of 1,200 of them to whom she could address the most bizarre and misguided queries I have seen in my entire life. Now... You come, <laughs> and it goes on. It <laughs> goes on from there. Well, sorry, uh, sorry for partying. Um, so anyway, it didn't all go well, but it went well enough. Uh, and then, I mean, before I get into a couple of the stories that I that I did get, um, thirty years later. The University of Houston Libraries was still doing this, you know, hold up a book thing. And so some professors were invited to bring their favorite book or their book that meant the most to them or meant something to them. At the time, I held up Walker Percy's The Movie Goer, which I would still uh, include there. But this morning and now, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to just read a little bit from the beginning and the end of Norman McLean's book, uh, his, his little novella, A River Runs Through It. Uh, I think it's about uh, 1976 or 77. In our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. We lived at the junction of the Great Trout Rivers in western Montana. And our father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman who tied his own flies and taught others. He told us about Christ's disciples, disciples being fishermen. And we were left to assume, as my brother and I did, that all first-class fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen. <laughs> and that John, the favorite, was a dry fly fisherman. Now, it is true that one day a week was given over wholly to religion. On Sunday mornings, my brother, Paul, my brother Paul and I went to Sunday school and then to morning services to hear our father preach and in the evenings to Christian Endeavor and afterwards to evening services to hear our father preach again. In between, on Sunday afternoons, we had to study the Westminster Shorter Catechism for an hour and then recite before we could walk the hills with him while he unwound between services. But he never asked us more than the first question in the catechism. What is the chief aim of man, the chief end of man? 
And we answered together so one of us could carry on if the other forgot. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This always seemed to satisfy him, <laughs> as indeed such a beautiful answer should have. And besides, he was anxious to be on the hills where he could restore his soul and be filled again to overflowing for the evening sermon. How are we doing on time? Good, okay, okay. So let me read the end if the end of the book. If you haven't uh, read this book, don't think, please don't think the movie <laughs> is good enough because it isn't. <laughs> uh, but the book is fantastic. I don't think I can read it. Y'all read the end. It's worth it. Um, okay. So, let me get to um, something that's a little bit more, um, less uh, sentimental, I suppose. And this is a man named T.R. Fehrenbach. And you can see the, the books that he wrote. Uh, Fire and Blood, A Story of Mexico, A History of Mexico. Comanches, The History of a People. Comanches, The Destruction of a People. Lone Star, A History of Texas and U.S. Marines in action. Now, um, those are just some of the books that he, that he wrote. And um, he's a, a, tough, a tough dude. And um, uh, where's the rest of my script? I've got too, too, much, too much stuff here. I'll find it, I think, yeah. Um, so when I contacted him, um, he basically said, you're asking me about books that have made me who I am. Books and stories don't make you who you are. People do. It's the people who make you, not stories. And uh, there's an expression that I... Uh, that I picked up from, from a guy that interviewed Norman McLean, and uh, you know, he's kind of a stern guy also. Uh, and the expression is, whoops. The expression is, um, this was a man who did not suffer fools, took no prisoners, and when I talked to him, to borrow a turn of phrase, he acted like I had just invented rock and roll which was not something he thought was a good thing. Um, so this is a transcript of our, our interview. Okay, so it's not books or stories, it's people. That was the background. So I said, okay, well, who are the people who have made you? And he said, principally my grandfather. Um, what made him an influence on you? Well, he had a frontier attitude, a strong streak, survivorhood. Me, is there an episode or incident about your grandfather, something you think back on that captures who he was? Sure. When he was a young man around 24, 25, his right arm was shattered by gunfire at the shoulder. Was this before the turn of the century? We're talking the 20th century. Yes, he was apparently able to walk about a mile to a farmhouse where they called a doctor. The doctor took his arm off at the shoulder. He was white as a sheet, terrible loss of blood. This would have killed a lot of men. The fact that he was a cripple in those days with his right arm gone never prevented him from doing anything. He did everything. He taught himself to hunt and fish. He was engaged to a young lady and he went to her and said, you know, I'm only part of a man. I'll release you. Of course she wouldn't have it. She married him and it worked out splendidly. She was my grandmother. So, you said your grandfather had been shot. Was this a result of a dispute with another person? No, no, I think it was accidental. They all went armed and I don't think it was part of a gunfight. A shotgun fell and went off or something. So, your grandfather had a shattered shoulder or upper arm and walked a mile to a house and called for aid. Yes, and the survival was pretty much a miracle. And you remember when this happened. 
No, no, no. This all happened before I was born, before my mother was born. So you heard about it through a story? Long pause. Young man, this was a long time ago. Young man, you just taught me something. So that also taught me something, that the stories were not just about people holding up books, right? They weren't things that had been published in books. Most of the time, and most of the people I talked to, they were things that had happened to them or to someone who was important to them that had been made into a story, going back to Norman MacLean, by a storyteller or storytellers, and formed and repeated and uh, maintained, you know, over a period of time. Now, um, I'm very honored to have um, Susan Cooley here today. One of the people that I contacted was Denton Cooley, and he was very kind to me, uh, and he did send me a story. Um, he went to San Jacinto High School, and he was actually um, there when my mother and father were there. Uh, and I think that may have played some role. I put that in the letter. Uh, and he responded. He, he checked off the box, I will send you something, but not right now. <laughs> you know, I, give me about two months. And sure enough, he sent me uh, a, a story two months later. Um, and it was about his daughter Helen's, an injury that she had uh, falling off a diving board in Mexico at a swimming, at a, a, a swimming pool. And um, I decided not to read the story today because you can listen to it. Um, um, if you go to the uh, HoustonStorytellers.org, uh, December 8, 2016, which is there in the archives, go under So What's Your Story? My friend Warren Holloman um, was the guest, I mean, was the host on that, and he had me as a guest one, one evening, and I, I read the complete story. Um, now, here's another, uh, here's another story, uh, and we might have some time for questions later. This is, this is a guy named Jack McGuire. He's a um, writer and journalist uh, up in the Dallas area at the time, Denton. Um, and I call this a comedy of remarriage. This is really an important story to Ann Roddy and Jack McGuire. The phrase comedy of remarriage comes from um, a philosopher named Stanley Cavell, um, who was at Harvard. And, and, and it's, it, once you get that, once you understand that term and get it in your head, it applies to a lot of things. Um, and so this is literally a comedy of remarriage. I don't know whether you can read any of it, but this is kind of the first part. And it's about a young couple, you'll see them there, Ann and Jack in 1941. He, this is something that he, that he sent me in response to my inquiry. And um, it talks about their courtship, talks about uh, listening to the big bands, long walks, walks in the moonlight, um, a favorite spot back home in Denison called Terminal Hill. Um, just saying. So then the next line is, the romance flourished, and, but Jack transferred to the University of Texas and, and started dating Air Force cadets. They drifted apart. Um, in 1943, Ann married Jean Quint, an Air Force officer. Two years after that, Jack married Pat Horton, uh, who he, whom he had met at the university. Uh, Ann moved ar around, uh, married to a military man, and so on and so forth. The years passed. They lost track of each other. Um, then it says, enter fate. In 19, again, a kind of part of the narrative, right? Enter fate. In 1977, one of Ann's daughters was living in San Antonio. She read a feature article in a local paper about the new director of the Institute of Texan Cultures. She recognized that name, that was Jack McGuire. 
mother's old boyfriend and sent the clipping to Ann, who was living in Arkansas, where her husband had retired to become an executive of Walmart. They exchanged Christmas cards. Okay. Then, I'll read this paragraph without commentary. Then in 1982, Jean died of cancer. Three years later, Pat also died after a long bout with that disease, and meanwhile had married Bill Smith of Rogers, Arkansas. A few months later, he died of a heart attack. So it was, on June 15, 1986, Jack and Ann met again, the first time in 43 years, and as they say, the rest is history. And they have a picture, right? around a tree, um, on either side of a tree, like the one they took um, 45 years before. Um, a powerful story for the, for the two of them, and maybe a necessary one um, for, them to, um, for them to be together. Um, now I want to I want to close with um, I want to close with some stories about um, related to Price Daniel Sr. So do people know who Price Daniel was? Price Daniel Sr. Um, probably held more important public offices of any Texan in history. Uh, he was Texas Attorney General first. Then he was elected to the House of Representatives, where he became Speaker. Um, he was a United States Senator and was mentored by Lyndon Johnson. Um, he was elected Governor of Texas um, for three terms. And then he became, he was appointed, I think it was Preston Smith appointed him as a Supreme Court Justice. Um, he was from Liberty, Texas where I worked for a while, um, and um, he was a presence um, there. And I had great respect for him. It's not like I remember ever meeting him. He just, his spirit <laughs> abounded. So I thought this would be a good person. If, I, if he would reply, I would write to him and see. And he did reply. Um, um, Oh, I wanted to mention that the woman he married was the great-great-granddaughter of Sam Houston. I mean, you know. So um, he mentioned a book. First, he mentioned a book called Acres of Diamonds, a story about a man who wanted to gain great riches and sells his ranch to go out and prospect for gold or diamonds. Senator Daniels' takeaway was that the story emphasized that it is much better to be content with what you have to not be envious of others who may appear to be on top. Today, we might say, the lesson is to avoid, this is something I've been uh, learned recently, mimetic desires and mimetic rivalry, to be content with where you are. He said, I always had the basic belief in the land that I was raised up on. I had my riches at home, and when it came to politics, I was working to try to help others in that way. And then he said, I couldn't be in politics now. This was the mid-80s. Why not, I thought, and asked. He said, I don't have enough money, and I wouldn't go out trying to get it. Um, so that was his first response. Um, but he also said, oh, you know, the Bible, the Bible, but you don't want to hear about the Bible. And I said, um, well, yeah, is something specific in the Bible? Side, sidebar. This is his son, Price Daniel Jr. Also brilliant as a very young man. Um, one story has him giving speeches for his father at political rallies when he was only 12 years old. Um, he was elected to three successive terms to the Texas House of Representatives. He was also elected as Speaker of the House 
in part because he was so squeaky clean and the, the, the uh, Sharpstown scandal uh, had occurred and it was a basic house cleaning um, in the Texas legislature uh, in the early 70s. And um, Price was young, very young, and very fresh and very honest and wasn't uh, associated with any of the bad things. And so he was elected uh, Speaker of the House. Um, he then ran for Attorney General uh, a little bit later in the 70s, and he lost to Mark White, who eventually became governor. Um, Mark was, I believe, a graduate of Lamar High School, um, not too far from here, and a friend of a, a mutual friend of Ted's and mine named Gene Antill. Um, another sidebar, <laughs> we got a bunch of students together one time, and Mark White had retired from being governor. I guess he got beat, but, um, and we went up to Huntsville. He, he was associated with the prison system then, and we went on a bus to Huntsville and had a very memorable experience going into the penitentiary there, um, courtesy of Mark White. But anyway, so things kind of turned for Price Daniel Jr. Um, he um, lost to Mark White. He was, became, I guess, a Speaker of the House. Maybe there was some kind of a, he had a role in something called the Constitutional Convention. It's called CONCON. <laughs> and um, he was rather progressive. He was trying to get some things passed, and, the, and it all fell apart. And he got labeled half price. Um, he, was, he was a small person, and um, not that his father was real tall or anything like this, but this was humiliating. He was only. 35 years old, and it was time for him to really flourish. His first marriage fell apart. Um, he was married to, in, married into a wealthy, prestigious family. Um, I don't remember the details. And he started courting a woman who worked behind the counter at the uh, Dairy Queen in Liberty, Texas. And this was um, remarkable, um, and um, he would go and buy coffee, and he would give her cards and send her cards. Anyway, eventually, she was divorced and had a couple of children. Eventually, they got married. Eventually, by eventually, I mean about I don't know six or seven months later, something like that. They had two children, but Price was working 14, 16 hours at his illegal work. He had. He did a lot of real estate. He had a mobile home park uh, outside of Liberty. He eventually moved his office into a mobile home off of the main street. And there was trouble at home. One night he came back from the office. Their plans for divorce had been made. It had all been written up. He was going to provide a down payment on a house and different kinds of things you know, $700 a month childcare and so on and so forth. And some of, some of you know this, and I, I'm not gonna get it exactly right, um, but his wife, um, Vicki, shot him with a 22 rifle and he died. And uh, the police came and, you know, she didn't call for about an hour, I think it was, called a friend, and then finally, you know, the, the um, ambulance was called. But he was gone by then. And um, it, was, it was a scandal. I mean, it was a terrible thing that happened, and when terrible things happen, um, communities have a tendency to fill in the details. Why did this happen? Someone has to be to blame. Um, Vicki was tried, um, found not guilty, uh, because Price was abusive, she said. She was defending herself. 
um, and so on. This is his grave. And on the right, you'll see a Warner Brothers uh, advertisement for a movie about his marriage to Vicki called Bed of Lies. Now, I haven't watched this movie, but I read the blurb on it, and it is horrific. Um, the movie came out in 1992, I think. Um, Price Sr. died of a stroke in 1988. My interview with him was 1986. His son had died five years earlier. So, when I asked him about what in the Bible meant the most to him, he may be able to guess. So I said, why that story? What does it mean to you? That story is about forgiveness. I like the way forgiveness overcomes the envy and ill temper of the older brother, our Heavenly Father forgives. So what stories are making you? Thank you very much. You're a great storyteller. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. And um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but it would be possible to have a PDF of the slides to of send out to those of you who are watching. And those of you who are here, I think we would really love That'd to have great. That'd you. Be great. You, got, you want to take any time for q and I do. Yeah, I'm Anybody happy to. Anybody got a question? Anybody? Somebody. There's one. Frida? Frida. So what story is important to you? Right, so the, the, A River Runs Through It has, has been resonating with me the last two or three years a lot. And I think that in the sort of in the comedy of remarriage narrative, you, you can see that at certain points in time, different stories emerge as more important. When I was younger, moviegoer, which is about a 30-year-old sar sardonic, sarcastic, brilliant, you know, but not willing to kind of get, grow up, man was named Binks Bowling. Well, that was me, you know. But I mean, he kind of, he, he goes to medical school, sort of, he realized that's going to happen, and I did that too. But, you know, it was a time of alienation and resistance and so on like that. So. But right now, the moviegoer, as, as brilliant as it is, it doesn't have the same resonance that a river runs through it does. So, um, um, you know, Norma, Norma McLean, uh, Helen Marie and I got to meet him in Chicago. He had retired from University of Chicago, but we were up there, and he was just wonderful. Um, um, my wife was, was head nurse in the burn unit at the University of Chicago eventually. Uh, and he was working on a book called Young Men and Fire, um, which with all the fires we're having seems to have some resonance, but this was about four firefighters who actually died in a fire in Montana in 1919. Anyway, um, so I have a personal relationship with him, and, um, um, and I, I, I knew people even better who knew him, and so he's He's emerged, and what he's dealing with in that book, among other, it's very funny, but he's dealing with the loss of his brother. So, long answer to a short question. There's one over here. He, he's a great storyteller. I think he also wrote a book called A Place to Come To. Did he write that? 
There are three or four stories in the in the River Runs Through It collection. I don't remember that title. Okay. Possible. Uh, he's a great story. He didn't write anything until he was 65 in forced retirement, which yeah. is amazing. That's right. Now, yeah, now all I have to do is write a river run, sir. Bill, I'm uh, very interested in storytelling, and I wonder if you could tell me all you know about the Houston storytelling scene. Which are the best places to go, et cetera? So what I would do is, and I will, what I will do is put you in contact with my friend Warren Holloman, who, as I said, was the host of So What's Your Story? Um, uh, he also does it's essentially stand-up storytelling. Uh, there's a place over in what they call Edo now that I've been to. I forget the name of it. I could. That's right. Say louder. Warehouse Live. Warehouse Live. The moth. And then The Moth. And there's a couple of um, my former students, uh, Blair Alt, and another student who, who I just saw, you know, on Facebook. It kind of started during the pandemic, and that didn't work. I mean, it was okay, but it wasn't stand-up storytelling. And they've got a, they've got a monthly thing. I think it's at the old Continental Club on Main Street, um, which I could also point you in that direction if we, we can communicate. But there is a storytelling scene here in town, for sure. Okay, one more. One of the things you talked about was um, the importance of a comment on avoiding mimetic desires and mimetic fantasy. Could you speak to that briefly? Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, a, a new ax I'm grinding, I guess you could say. Um, there's a, a French thinker named René Girard um, who has been influential in a number of different ways. Um, you can Google him and, and Google uh, also scapegoat. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Wanting, which really delves into this. And the basic point is that um, we're, as the creatures we are, we want things not because we want them in a fundamental way, but because someone else has them. And I was, uh, I'm part of this Imprint Educators Institute, and I see Kim Ling Sun back there. And I was talking to my group. I said, the best way to understand this is the green ball, which is uh, a point of contention for our dog, who is an American Bulldog, and my son Mark's dog, who is a uh, German Shepherd. And the, the green ball's okay, kind of an okay toy, when they're by themselves. But when you get them together, one will get it, and the other one just barks and barks and barks and barks. <laughs> and you take it away from that one and toss it to the other one. And the other one just barks and looks at it and won't do anything, cannot be distracted by food or anything else. So that's mimetic desire. You kind of like the green ball, but you mainly like it because somebody else has got it and you don't, even if there are two green balls. Y'all, we have, we bought two green balls. They're these hard, you know, hard, you can have it, you know, Osito, that's yours. Douglas, Buster Douglas, that's yours. No, they want the other one. <laughs> so that's mimetic desire and it's, it's very destructive and it's very prevalent. <laughs> So there is a man that most people here know, a uh, guy named Frederick Beekner died a couple of years ago, and he was a Presbyterian minister and also a novelist. I own everything he's written. Well, the things that were reprints later in his life, I didn't, I didn't buy those, but he tells a story that, um, and by the way, the Christian Century now has every month, or they used to, periodically have a Frederick Beeker storytelling thing. It's, it's really good. They throw a word out, and you gotta tell a story about it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and he, he, was, he said one time that if you go to the smartest philosopher in the world and ask him why so-and-so is true, he'll give you an answer, 
They say, yeah, but why is that true? And he'll give you an answer. Yeah, but why is that true? And he finally push everything aside and say, once upon a time. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. That's it's great. A story. That's great. Thank you, well, sir. It's been my pleasure to be that here. That was wonderful. Thank you all. Thank very you much. all. Thank no you. matter where you go, what happens, remember this you carry precious cargo. So watch your step and next, see you here next week. Thank you.